I would invite you to consider employee ownership as a part of your succession plan, because I do really believe in the value of it, particularly in an employee-owned cooperative paradigm. I really believe in what it can do to help address some of the inherent evils of like the pure capitalist structure. I think it's an incredible way to engage your employees and to help them deepen their commitment to the company, to the cause, and to empower them to take charge of their lives, their work lives. As your business is growing, a purpose-driven founder like you may be looking for an ownership structure that would continue operating in the interest of all stakeholders, follows the fundamental value and purposes of why you started this business at the beginning, and preserve the many distinctive practices that support your mission. A business is only as good as its people. So why not move capital into the service of people, planet, and community for the long term? We want you to think outside the box. That's why we curate this Alternative Ownership podcast series for you. In last week's episode, episode 140, it was the fourth episode in the series. We brought in Linda Phillips, an attorney who thinks deeply about how to harness ownership to advance social and environmental change. Change. She shared about the cooperative model from the perspective of an attorney. She shares a lot of valuable information you need to have for transitioning to a cooperative model. Today is the fifth episode in this Alternative Ownership podcast series. Amanda Bybee, CEO of Amicus ONM Cooperative, she has a unique perspective about the cooperative model. She was an employee who helped transition her employer into a cooperative. Then later, she is involved in founding a few others cooperative, including a credit union and share services cooperative. In today's episode, Amanda share what she learned after founding several cooperative and then now operating a cooperative and why she believes the cooperative model can address some of the inherent issues in capitalism. You're listening to Her CEO Journey, the business finance podcast for mission-driven women entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Christina Shahli. If you are new here, a big warm welcome. If we are not connected on LinkedIn, please reach out and say hi, because that's where I hang out and share my business finance tips. If you have been listening to this podcast for a while, and you are a regular listener. I want you to know I appreciate you. My podcast won't be around without your support. This is a free weekly show where my guests and I want to inspire you to balance between mission and profit, to create an impact in this world, and to achieve financial equality through your business for good. The more knowledge you have about your business, the more confident you are to speak with investors who are going to support your transition to the cooperative model or another alternative ownership model. When you transition to cooperative or other alternative ownership model, it is still a business, which means profitability is important, even for impact investors. They want to see where your business is going in the future. So how can you up-level your forecasting process to show future profitability? If you are unsure how to get started with the forecasting process, we have created a guide for you. Use the link in the show notes to download the guide and jumpstart your financial forecasting journey. When you are ready to focus on building your business and want us to manage the financial back office process in your business, connect with us at christinashahli.com forward slash let's chat. Amanda Bybee, welcome to her CEO journey. It is a pleasure to have you here today. Thanks for having me. Before we dive into your experience working and forming a few cooperative, I really want to start with your journey joining Namaste Solar, and then now you are the CEO of Amicus ONM Cooperative. So let's start with that. Sure. So I started out my journey in renewable energy back in 2003. I was working at a nonprofit organization in Austin, Texas, and we co-founded the Solar Austin Campaign. 
to lead a grassroots effort that would inspire the municipally owned utility there to do more with renewable energy, in particular solar energy, as we saw the potential for growth for that market in the coming years. Then I moved to Colorado in 2005, uh, which was shortly after the state had established its statewide renewable energy goals. Having come at renewable energy from the policy angle, I knew that there was a lot going on with the rulemaking to implement this new law. So one sunny day in August 2005, I rode my bicycle up to the Public Utilities Commission building to attend a hearing. And while I was there, I met one of the co-founders of Namaste Solar. He made a very strong impression on me that led to what is now a 15-year business relationship and friendship. Mm. Is that Blake? That's Blake Jones, yeah. (laughs) Was Namaste Solar at that point was already an employee-owned company? So it was founded with the idea of being an employee-owned company. I do not claim founder status, but I do claim number five on payroll uh, full-time. That was a very small team. Well, we, we were careful to give the kudos to those that really dreamed up the concept. Because by the time I got there, they had certain cultural habits and other aspects of the business model had been thought through. And so really give a lot of credit to the original founders. So Namaste Solar was an employee-owned cooperative, and we worked with a local attorney to draft a custom shareholder agreement, and that governed our our relationship as employee owners to the company in the first five years. So what you are saying, when you joined, it wasn't an employee-owned company yet. It was. It was an employee-owned company. You knew when you joined, you knew about that. I did. I didn't know a lot, but I knew that that was what we were. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So what intrigued you to join them? Other than, you know, okay, Blake made an impression. Was it an attractive, the fact that Namaste was already an employee-owned company? To tell you the truth, I didn't have much of a frame of reference for what that meant when I joined. Mind you, I was still quite early in my career, in my mid-20s. And so I was still figuring out what that meant. But what impressed me greatly was this idea that we wanted our business to walk the talk, to pay as much attention to how we did what we did, and to really be mindful of the way in which we were sharing the business ownership experience. And we talked a lot about the shared risk and reward of being business owners together. And this manifested itself in many ways from the way that we approached financial literacy questions. We spent a lot of time teaching everyone that joined the company how to read your basic financial statements, teaching them the considerations of running a business. Like We shared so much education and so much decision-making in those early days. It was really an immense crash course in business ownership. And the idea that we all had skin in the game through our ownership really made that land for us in a more meaningful way than, than it would have if it was just a, an open book management company with profit sharing or something. It just, it, it was really appealing to me to be a part of that decision-making structure and to have access to all the information. And it was many years later, a colleague put this into perspective for me where she said, in so many companies, information is a form of currency. Those who have the information are sought after. They're the ones that control everything. It's a form of power. I couldn't have put it into words for you in 2006 and 2007, but I I later came to see how incredibly open Namaste Solar was with information and how that gave empowerment to each of the employee owners that joined up. So... I was really drawn to this this business model, these earnest, sincere do-gooders who wanted to help the world and who wanted to be conscious of the way that they did it. That is definitely a different concept. And then the fact that the founders or, or Namaste Solar really open book, even like teaching about financial literacy and teaching how, you know, to run a business. I haven't heard about that. <laughs> 
Yeah, Maybe. there's actually, uh, we had read a book about it. The Great Game of Business huh. by Jack Stack. It's a terrific book. It's very accessible. Like some business books are so dense, it's hard to get engaged in them, but it's well told as a story. But they were the first ones that introduced this concept of open book management, which has gone on to be its own nonprofit organization where they teach companies how to function this way. And it's all predicated on the fact that when you give people the information and you help them see how their work affects the bottom line, they are that much more motivated to do a good job and to be efficient and to help eliminate waste and to employ that concept of Kaizen, of like constant improvement, right? And in particular, in the great game of business, they, they also outline a, a profit sharing mechanism that financially motivates employees to that end. But I think that just the information alone in many cases is enough to help people see how they fit and see the impact of their work and their decisions. We carry that into a lot of policies at Namaste Solar in that we chose not to have policies. Like we didn't have an expense policy for a very long time because we just said, you know what? You're an owner in this business. And when you go to conferences, if you choose to go to a super fancy restaurant and spend a bunch of money on a fancy dinner, you know that that's going to take money out of the bottom line. Whereas if you go to the mid-priced restaurant, you're exercising good decision-making that doesn't sacrifice your customer relationship, but that also isn't extravagant. And we found that when you enable people to have that information and you trust them to make good decisions, they did. And you know, it's not to say that over the years, we didn't encounter some abuse of that. We did. But by and large, we wanted to operate with this belief that well-educated and responsible adults are going to make good decisions. So that is a powerful statement. What I'm curious about, it seems like when you joined the company, it was already have such a great culture. And I'm assuming everybody that joined, they become an employee owner, part of the employee own. So it's not like there is some of them just employee and not an owner, I'm assuming. In the beginning, Everyone joined as an employee owner, and we called them that on day one. Over time, though, we started to encounter people who were not interested in ownership, who really still wanted to be a part of the company because they believed in the mission and they believed in the culture, but they were, for whatever reason, unwilling or unable to participate at the ownership level. So eventually, we did stratify and allow for there to be employees who were not also owners. And then the paradigm further crystallized when we converted to the employee-owned cooperative. And so today, the way it works, when you first join, you join as the company as an employee, and then you decide if you want to get on an ownership track. And the ownership track is open to every single position in the company. And you say, I would like to become a candidate for ownership. And candidates spend a year learning about the company, going through the financial literacy classes, going through a mentorship program with an an owner who can teach them about what does it mean to be an owner in this cooperative. And then after a year, they are voted on and become an employee owner. And that's when they purchase their share in the company. It seems that The concept is very similar between employee-owned company and worker cooperative, especially the way Namaste Solar is operating. What is the difference then? Like, why does it even matter to transition to a worker cooperative if the employee-owned structure or model was working perfectly? So from a technical perspective, Being employee-owned and being worker-owned cooperative, they're both forms of employee ownership, just like an ESOP, an employee stock ownership plan, is another form of employee ownership. The difference for us and why that conversion was important is that we operated on a day-to-day basis on a one-person, one-vote paradigm. But our governance structure in the beginning was a more conventional one-share, one-vote paradigm. And we found that 
early joiners in the company were able to purchase more shares on average than people who joined later in the evolution of the company as the share price rose. And so that developed into an unintentional concentration of shares among a handful of the early joiners who were able to buy larger quantities. And when it came down to it, if, for example, we had ever wanted to consider selling the company, you would have had the capacity for, let's say, 10 of the early owners to vote to sell the company over the wishes of the rest of the ownership. So it led to this recognition that the governance structure was out of line with our culture and our operational structure. Whereas the cooperative model is fundamentally built around this idea that one person has one share and one vote. So it was a way for us to bring the governance structure into alignment with our operating structure. It also, as in the course of our conversion, we created a preferred class of stock that also allowed us to accept external investment, which the prior model did not allow for. And that was another way for us to continue growing. And so today, Namaste Solar has a number of preferred shareholders. They can purchase more than one share. Uh, It's a different share structure. But their shares do not have voting rights. So it's a a way for the company to raise external capital and continue growing, but without sacrificing internal control. And this was a model that we borrowed heavily from our friends at Equal Exchange, which is a fair trade coffee, tea, and uh, bananas company, chocolate and chocolate. Equal Exchange is a remarkable example of a cooperative, and they pioneered this structure. 25 plus years ago now. And when we first got intrigued by the idea of cooperatives and we met the folks at Equal Exchange, they shared so openly what their structure was. And because they had 20 years under their belt of raising capital in this way, which is very unusual, right? Most shareholders are unwilling to put capital in and not have a vote to influence that company. But they were instrumental in helping us learn about and build on their shoulders, stand on their shoulders. And so those were some of the important differences for us and what we accomplished in that conversion. So I think it worked out very well in the end. Just out of curiosity, where did you even find this type of investors? There are probably a few type of investors who are willing to have non-voting rights. They are definitely a sliver of a sliver. But today, the the concept of impact investing is pretty well understood. In 2011, it was less so. And so as we began our search, we were very fortunate to also benefit from the tutelage of the capital coordinator from Equal Exchange. He was the first external board member of the Namaste Solar Board of Directors. And he made a ton of introductions to the investors that had already invested in equal exchange. And he also introduced Namaste Solar to this world of impact investing, where we found different investment advisors who shared that values foundation and who have brought a number of investors to Namaste Solar over the years. But the other thing that's interesting about it is that you don't just call Namaste Solar and say, I want to invest in your company. Namaste has always been very careful to vet those investors and make sure that they understand what they're getting into and make sure they've really read the business plan and the the shareholder agreement very carefully because we're looking for very particular types of investors who are patient with their capital, who believe in the mission, who are satisfied with the return that we are targeting to give them and who are not going to be breathing down our necks for a liquidity event or for exit strategies and and fast, rapid growth. And it's been incredibly gratifying to learn that there is a community of investors out there who believe in that, who are willing to put their money where their beliefs are and be patient with that capital. And Namaste Solar has been very successful in the course of its fundraising. And those investors have stood by them through ups and downs. So what was the biggest struggle during this transition? 
it took us about a year to conduct the research, to discuss and agree on a number of key factors that supported the transition. Because effectively, the cooperative needed to buy the shares from those original shareholders and convert them into something. So we had to agree on a strike price. Like, what were we going to offer ourselves for those shares? So we, you can sort of imagine there being a line, right? There's the, the before conversion where we had a certain share paradigm. And then there's the after conversion where it was different. And the purchase was the line. So we talked and talked and talked until we were purple. <laughs> um, got ourselves to a point of, of clarity on what needed to happen. And we held a vote, a shareholder vote on, if memory serves, it was December 1st of 2010. And we had to have a certain threshold of the number of shares that were held at the time agree to the conversion. Because if too many people had chosen not to reinvest their shares in the cooperative, it wouldn't have worked. And we just barely met that threshold. So it was, it was a squeaker. But it worked. And so we did have a couple of significant shareholders choose to cash out and not reinvest into the cooperative. The rest of us did. And that was great and fine. As much as we emotionally wanted there to be 100% buy-in, we also recognized that people had come into that investment paradigm with a certain expectation. And in the original shareholder agreement, the shares appreciated over time as the value of the company grew. And this was a significant departure for us because under the cooperative paradigm, it was a dividend yielding investment with no guarantee that we would meet the target dividends and no opportunity for the stock price to appreciate. It's a huge shift in, in an investor's thinking. And so we understood that there were some people who had invested originally with that expectation of appreciation for their stocks and for whom the new paradigm just wasn't acceptable. So that worked out in the end because we had enough of the shares choose to reinvest. And basically at every investment inflection point, we asked for another five-year commitment, which is another part of that patient capital concept that we couldn't function as a company if we had to operate on a one-year horizon and constantly having to turn over money. So we ask the investors to have a patient outlook on that. It was a big switch for the investors moving into the cooperative paradigm. And fortunately, we had, we had enough of them make that commitment. The, the conversion took effect a month later on January 1st of 2011. Did it change the dynamic? There was this understanding that we had all just recommitted ourselves to the company and to each other. And we had recommitted our capital for another five years. And for those who had owned few shares and who gained footing in terms of the egalitarianism of the governance structure, they felt proud of that, that their voice, their share, their vote carried as much weight as anybody else's. And so if there had been a sense, you know, even a deep down sense, because it didn't come up very much in day-to-day -day conversation, we all knew that the playing field was now level. And so that does have a, a fairly profound impact. It did at some point end up changing the dynamics when we started exercising those governance rights a little bit more. It felt good. It felt good that we were all on the same footing. So was it a struggle for you personally as an individual, as an employee? At Namaste Solar, we've tried to get very good over the years at identifying which hat we're wearing because when you're an employee and an owner, you know, you hold a different position in the org chart. Like you have these different kind of perspectives, right? As an employee, I felt great about it, you know, because it did feel like righting a wrong or, or maybe not a wrong, but just fixing an issue where we, we had been a little bit out of step with ourselves. So I felt great. As an investor, it also, you know, on one hand, I was a very early member of the company. So I had benefited by luck of timing, really, in that I had purchased my shares very early in the development of the company. So I benefited from the buyout and the strike price that we set for converting shares. So that felt very good that my investment 
was looking pretty solid, you know, at that vantage point in time, like, Hey, great. Look how much my, my investment grew in these five years. But it also did have a little bit of a bittersweet note because I knew that the potential for further growth was going to be dulled by the fact that we we chose to convert the nature of the investment to a dividend yielding investment as opposed to an appreciating investment. So it's a complicated picture, but it's all also removed enough. You know, we also kind of trained ourselves to to believe that it was all kind of play money at some point. It's like the stock market. It looks good on paper, but until you actually cash out and, and turn it into cold hard cash, it's all sort of ephemeral, right? It doesn't it doesn't hit home in a very like visceral way for me at least. If you can, let's say that, you know, some of my audience right now is maybe an employee own or they are in the ESOP type of uh, model, what would be your advice to them if, you know, as they're listening this and then they're saying, okay, we want to do cooperative now. Now this is intriguing. What would be your advice to them to make this transition smoother? I think in the end, we felt very peaceful with the fact that we had not started as a cooperative. Because one of the challenges of the cooperative paradigm, because it is such an egalitarian structure, it doesn't really do a good job of recognizing the risk that you incur as an early investor in a company. Most venture capitalists, most early stage investors incur a ton of risk and they expect a commensurate reward. And that is not wrong. Like that is, that is a pretty fundamental relationship of risk and reward, right? And we see that all the time in the marketplace. Low risk stocks do not yield the same as high risk stocks. For those of us who joined early and who did put in our money at a time when the company was a baby startup, high risk, you know, lots of promise, obviously, or we wouldn't have done it. The shareholder paradigm that we had adopted originally recognized that very well. And the conversion felt like a good move to make when we were slightly more mature and slightly more stable. Now, anyone in the solar industry will laugh at me for using the word stable and solar in the same <laughs> sentence because the industry has not been very stable for 15 years. It looks stable to me from the outside. <laughs> uh, well, well, we'll let you enjoy that. Vantage point but it, it felt right. And it was a good time for us as a company to make that move and to true up that mismatch that we had been feeling the discomfort about. And so I, I think that the other thing that I really like about our cooperative model is that it doesn't put all the onus of growing capital on the employee owners. Because one thing that we felt very strongly about was that we didn't want the financial buy-in to be a burden or to be a hurdle for people who wanted to become employee owners. And so we set the share price at $5,000, which is a meaningful sum of money, but it's not unattainable. We also did a company loan structure where you could just pay it out of your paycheck if you didn't have the, the $5,000 in cash up front to purchase your share. You know, So we've done a lot over the years to try to make that accessible. And, and there are some who would argue that even so, if you're, if you're at the low end of the pay scale, $5,000 coming out of your paycheck still doesn't feel very accessible. And I hear that. I, I think there's still work to do to, to truly make it accessible. But there was a principle behind that, that we didn't want to just gift stock because people don't feel the same sense of investment if something is given to them as they do if they earn it. And I think that's true. And there's a lot of psychology around that. Like, you know, if you let somebody sign up for a class for free, they're less likely to actually complete it because they don't have, they don't have any incentive to or any skin in that game that would make them feel invested in seeing it through to the end. So what you just mentioned in this last point, it makes me think, are you advising to wait to become a cooperative until later on in the journey? There are umpteen million ways that you could structure this. But I, I, I would say that if you're an early stage company and everyone's putting in the same amount of money to start it up, then a cooperative model 
is great because everybody's on equal footing. If you're an early stage company and some people are putting in more than others, you want to have a structure that recognizes that. So like I had described a little bit, you know, Namaste Solar has this class of preferred stock, which has a different set of rules applied to it than the common stock, which the employee owners own. And so adopting a model like that, that allows for some recognition of the greater risk and reward that those early investors expect, feels fair to me. And so I would just say that anytime there is an imbalance in investment, you need a way to recognize that. If everybody is on the same footing, everybody's putting in the same amount of money, then the cooperative model is perfectly great because it's a very neat and tidy way to acknowledge that. So it really depends on what your circumstances and and what your needs are and what everybody's able to bring to the table. I want to switch a little bit now to your founder and CEO perspective in starting a cooperative like Amicus O&M, right? I know there are different types of cooperative out there, but I want to hear your thought process. When you started Amicus OMM, what was the problem there? And then what type of cooperative Amicus is? In 2011, the same year that we converted to the worker-owned cooperative, we also co-founded Amicus Solar Cooperative, which is a purchasing co-op. And it was our answer to the problem of having more large national companies come into our marketplace who were purchasing such a volume of solar equipment that they were getting much more favorable pricing. And when we looked at that and we said, how are we going to compete with these guys? We don't want to become a big national company. We like being a relatively smaller, regional, independent player. We in the course of our research, had come to learn about a bunch of different types of cooperatives, including a purchasing co-op. So we started Amicus Solar. Today, it has 65 member owners all over the United States, Puerto Rico, and Canada. And my colleague, Stephen Irvin, has run that, that effort ever since. He was, at the time that we hatched the idea, he was the CFO of Namaste Solar. He has been a phenomenal leader of this purchasing cooperative, in large part, Not only does he steward its core function of purchasing, but he's also really stewarded the community that it's become. And so in 2014, a subset of the member companies of Amicus Solar got together to create the Clean Energy Credit Union, because credit unions are financial cooperatives. And we had looked at the problem of how do we provide competitive, compelling financing options to our customers? This is a long-term business interest for us, for them to be able to finance their solar arrays as well as we can. There were good options on the market at the time, but they were kind of opaque. We didn't have a lot of visibility into why they had certain fees or where the money was coming from. So we looked at starting a bank, we looked at starting a fund, and we settled on a credit union because it is a cooperative and we were kind of sold on this whole cooperative notion. And I was a part of that effort. Um, I kind of project managed the application with the National Credit Union Administration. And it took three years, but we got our charter in 2017 and opened for business in 2018. And the Clean Energy Credit Union is a, you know, we, we like to call it, it was like a panda birth because new financial entities are very rare relative to the degree of mergers and acquisitions you see both in banks and credit unions. Right around the time that we hired our first CEO for the credit union, Namaste Solar had been talking with one of the other members of Amicus Solar about their efforts to sell operations and maintenance contracts. And this is for the the long-term care of solar electric systems that we were installing. And they were running into the same issues. In large part, they were regional providers and they were increasingly talking to national portfolio holders. There was this mismatch in what they could offer. They wanted to provide services for the whole portfolio, but they were only able to service the ones who were geographically located near to their their shops. So my joke became, every time we ran into a business problem, we would say, is there a cooperative for that? (laughs) And then we would start one. (laughs) And so that was exactly how we came to start Amicus Operations and Maintenance Cooperative. 
and then was hired as the CEO of Amicus O&M in April of 2017. What type of cooperative is Amicus? We call Amicus O&M a shared services cooperative because really that is the fundamental value proposition to the member companies of Amicus O&M is in helping them learn how to provide this new service as a form of diversification for their businesses or learn how to continue providing the service ever more efficiently. So we have delivered over the years a whole set of tools and templates to help companies leapfrog some of the head scratching that comes with starting a new business unit or a new business. We do a lot of knowledge sharing, like monthly meetings where we compare notes on how our companies are solving different problems, or we learn together about new technologies that are hitting the market or about new issues that are arising or new, new forms of contract structures that clients are starting to ask for. And we're also building a training program because operations and maintenance is a relatively small niche within the solar world. And it's still not very well known or understood. So we're putting together a training program right now that actually will help the technicians in the field learn best practices, learn the safety learn the codes that we're conforming to. And then lastly, we, we seek to help our companies grow their O&M businesses. So to the extent that I'm on the conference circuit or talking to clients who say, hey, I've got sites in Georgia. Do you have any member companies there? I say, oh, matter of fact, I do. And I make introductions for them to hopefully help them land um, new sales. So For the most part, that's what we're doing is we are in position to help each other. If somebody lands a contract that includes sites that are outside of their geographic service area, they can call upon their fellow cooperative company to go do the boots on the ground work. How does cooperative make money, specifically Amicus, right? Because it's a shared services. So you're providing introduction, you're providing training, you're providing template. Our fundamental premise right now is that we do ask member companies to pay dues every year. So that makes up the lion's share of it. We started out the cooperative with one set of ideas. And of course, just like any startup, you go to market with your ideas and you see what takes hold and what doesn't. Our hope and expectation is to build the training program to the point that we can actually sell access to it to non-member companies and help continuing to spread that knowledge and education. and along the way, the standardization that comes with a training program out into the industry. So that's one of our concepts for revenue generation in the future. But right now, most of it's coming from from member dues and the occasional grant that I participate in. Is there profit sharing in every type of cooperative or only for the worker cooperative where there is profit sharing? No, there's absolutely profit sharing in every cooperative. And that's all baked into the tax rules that govern cooperatives. So ironically, you've heard of C-Corps and Mm S-Corps, right? Mm -hmm. Those refer to the chapter of the IRS tax code that governs those types of companies. Cooperatives are governed by subchapter T. So they should technically be called (laughs) T-Corps, but they're not. But that is an aspect of the cooperative's requirement that it redistribute profit in whole or in part to its shareholders. And there's actually a 1099 PATR, which cooperatives issue to their shareholders when they issue dividends. So this is all a very well-established part of how cooperatives file taxes. So each cooperative, based on its structure and its form of patronage, has a formula that they use to determine how much how much patronage dividend its shareholders should get at the end of a fiscal year. I'm trying to think in terms of internal business processes, is there a difference on how to run cooperative in comparison to non-cooperative model? That's a great question because that's a really misunderstood aspect of cooperatives. A cooperative is married to its structure at the governance level. So that notion of one share, one vote, absolutely intrinsic to a cooperative model. The day-to-day operations, however, do not have to conform to that. 
they can run just like any conventional company does. You can have managers, you can have direct reports, you can have you know, a fairly conventional hierarchy for decision-making within a cooperative. Namaste Solar is an exceptional example because it chose to take democratic principles very deep into its day-to-day operations, but that is not required and that is not necessarily a common feature of all cooperatives. Now, I will say this, there are seven principles of cooperatives that most try to adhere to, and I can't recite them all by memory, but there are some aspects of cooperatives that, that I do think most subscribe to, which is a culture of engagement and inclusion where it gives people a lot of choice. You know, there's aspects of cooperatives that, that are baked in um, at a cultural level, but in terms of an organizational structure, in terms of a decision-making chart, you can have quite a lot of flexibility in how you choose to run your business on a day-to-day level. So... The operational struggles for cooperative and non-cooperative are basically the same then. Technically, it's the same. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they have a lot of similarities. I do think many cooperatives elect to to operate a little bit differently because they they subscribe to certain ideals about how we want to transform capitalism. You know, one of the things that I love about a cooperative is that it's a really elegant way to align the interests of your workers or your shareholders with the interests of the entity. Because sometimes, you know, in a conventional company, right, if you're an employee, your interests are not necessarily aligned with that of the company. You want your salary to be as high as possible. And the company wants to be as profitable as possible. And the more it pays out in salaries, the less profit it has. So there's an inherent conflict of interest from those two parties in a conventional structure. In an employee-owned cooperative, for example, you're an owner and you're an employee. So you have to balance those interests and you have a different respect for each because you hold both. And I think that cooperatives can be a really incredible form of wealth generation for workers that typically doesn't exist in a conventional structure. You know, in the conventional capitalist-driven company, the shareholders are generally moneyed to begin with. You know, they're part of the haves. And when a company does well, the haves benefit. But who really made that benefit, right? It's the workers that did. And they're lucky if there's profit sharing, but they don't have that equity growth. They don't have that wealth growth in the same way that the shareholders have. So I'm really drawn to a cooperative structure as a way to counteract some of the sort of inherent capitalist inequalities that we see. But in a sheer service cooperative that you are heading right now, there is no need for wealth growth. If I understand this correctly, your members are basically standalone businesses. Yes. That are solar companies. That is correct. Their wealth growth comes from their own business. It seems to me like it's a different concept than the worker cooperative. Is is that fair? Okay. Mm-hmm. Absolutely fair. And I think that the idea is that their their ownership of the other cooperatives, so ownership in Amicus Solar and Amicus O&M mm-hmm. should contribute to the profitability of those companies ultimately. And you know, it's another reason why we have such a, a predilection for employee-owned companies within our cooperatives, because we see that as another way that we're contributing to that wealth growth. So it's an indirect contribution, I think is a fair statement. And for the other companies in our cooperatives that are not employee-owned, we are still participating in a capitalist structure, right? Those companies exist to make profit, and those profits benefit shareholders. And their investment in the cooperatives, they're buying a share in each cooperative should ultimately help them be more profitable. So we are contributing to that. And Amicus O&M is not also an employee-owned cooperative. So for example, I, as the sole staff person, I don't benefit when the cooperative is profitable and I don't share in the loss if the cooperative bears a loss. So to do that, we would have to become a multi-stakeholder cooperative. (laughs) And we haven't quite gone that route yet. 
you know, as you were saying that, I'm like, so is that going to be like a cooperative over a cooperative or cooperative on a cooperative? Like, I don't even know how. I know, right? It's the cooperative multiverse. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) That that could be, that could be a challenge for you. Like, you know, to, to set it up. Like, yeah, it, it definitely is a is another wrinkle of complication, but it's done and it, it does have a real name, which is a multi-stakeholder cooperative. Huh. You know, interestingly, this this week that we're recording the podcast is the same week as the National Cooperative Business Association Conference. And I participated in a panel session today where a graduate student at the University of Colorado wrote a paper about what they called the Namaste Network. And it, it chronicles the creation of this ecosystem that we have where each of the cooperatives is an independent entity and could absolutely survive without the others. But they are all a part of this economy that we have created, which is within the solar industry. So it, it includes Namaste Solar, Amicus Solar, Amicus O&M, the Clean Energy Credit Union, and an investment cooperative called Kashua Impact Investing Fund. So there are multiple ways to approach this idea, right? You don't have to be a single multi-stakeholder cooperative. You can also have what we're calling a network, a cooperative network, where they're independent but interconnected at the same time. This is so interesting what Namaste Solar have created in Colorado. From Namaste Solar is basically creating a few others. It is a network. I want to touch on a little bit in terms of the members when you are building a cooperative. And then you can talk about it from the perspective of Amicus OMN. How do you make sure that the members joining the cooperative is aligned in value and they are willing to continue supporting each other. This is probably one of the most important aspects of my job because it's a lot like hiring a new employee. You do your best to get to know a company and to get to know, just like you would try to get to know a prospective employee. And you have interviews and you check references and you, you know, get samples of their work. And you, we have a whole vetting process that we go through to to do our best and ensure that the new member companies we bring in are going to be additive to the culture we're building. And some of the most important questions that I start out with are, you know, what is your business philosophy around sharing information? Because there are a lot of business people who hold their cards close to their vest and who are appalled at the notion of sharing their their hard-fought business secrets along the way because that's their special sauce. That's their differentiation from the competition. And that's the first hurdle for me when I'm, when I'm talking to a potential new member company is, do they get that? Because if they're not going to be willing to share openly and, and within that, be vulnerable and admit mistakes and share lessons learned the hard way, you know, this is not a place where we come to, to you know, it's not social media where we're, we pretend to have everything figured out and everything is rosy and perfect. We come here to share honestly together and to help each other learn and grow. And both in Amicus Solar and in Amicus O&M, I have witnessed such incredible willingness to be vulnerable and willingness to share those stories so that others can learn from our mistakes. And then in turn, you get to hear the stories of others. And I think at the end of the day, there's a humility that comes with this. And in knowing that, okay, I'm running a solar business in Texas and I'm running a solar business in California and I'm running a solar business in Tennessee. And at the end of the day, we may have slight differences in our marketplaces and our incentive programs and our customer base. But at the end of the day, we're doing the same thing and we're facing similar challenges. And I don't have all the answers. And so when I can compare notes with those others and develop the camaraderie and come up with creative solutions and partner together on new ideas, it's incredibly valuable to find yourself in a community of companies who share your values and who are willing to be open in that 
that is the number one benefit of being a part of any of these cooperatives. And I think the member companies will be quick to tell you that that's what they value the very most is that sense of not being alone. So what happened if a member join and then you realize they're not in alignment to the other members and not willing to share? We do have it written into the documentation that a company would sign when they first join that if, you know, they, they have to do something fairly egregious to be invited to leave. What would constitute that type of uh, moment would be if someone violated the trust of another company. And I talk about this at great length during the vetting process that if somebody came to a meeting and heard a story from another company and then used that story against them in a competitive sales situation, that would be grounds for dismissal because that is a violation of trust. Is there a maximum limit for a cooperative to accept members? No. Examples of very large cooperatives out in the world that have you know, hundreds of member companies or thousands of workers. So there's not a, a, an intrinsic limit. We might choose to impose a limit at some point in time because I think just like a company that scales from a very small and intimate startup into a large company, you do have to modify the culture as you go and you have to adapt it as you go. And so we, there may come a point in time where our growth leads us to inflection points where we would have to change something that we're not willing to change. But it's not inherent in, in a cooperative that you have to be limited. So Amanda, is there anything else that you want to share with my audience that I haven't asked about this cooperative model? I think what I would encourage is, is especially if you are the founder of a company and you see retirement on your horizon, I would invite you to consider employee ownership as a part of your succession plan. Because I do really believe in the value of it, particularly in an employee-owned cooperative paradigm. I really believe in what it can do to help address some of the inherent evils of like the pure capitalist structure. I think it's an incredible way to engage your employees and to help them deepen their commitment to the company, to the cause, and to empower them to take charge of their lives, their work lives. That sense of disempowerment is what I think leads to such dissatisfaction. And one of the things that we're seeing today in the quote, the great resignation is that people are tired of being excluded from that information currency. They're tired of not having autonomy and agency over the decisions that affect their professional lives. And so looking at employee ownership as a form of succession is, can be a very powerful way to go out and to leave a legacy to your employees. Cooperative is one mechanism, but there are a bunch of ways to be employee owned and, and you don't have to be purely one thing or another. You know, I would, I regard in some respects, the equal exchange and the Namaste solar paradigm is, is a pretty creative way to have both common stock, which retains internal control and preferred stock, which allows you to bring in more capital. So there's lots of ways to be creative with this. And I think the first step is just opening your mind to that possibility and socializing the idea with your, with your employees to see if they would be interested in that sort of thing. What Namaste Solar did in teaching the employee to become a business owner is really important because I think even to transition to become an employee-owned the employees technically become an entrepreneur. It's a huge mindset shift, in my opinion, from an employee role to become an entrepreneur or a business owner. You are so right about that. I think that when you have people that are excited to take that on, it can be so invigorating because suddenly you have this new power. You have this new ability to influence the world around you. And it's thrilling to, to find yourself in those shoes. And I was so lucky in my career that I stumbled into it the way that I did. But that's what's led me to be the evangelist that I am. 
yeah. <laughs> for, for yeah. employee ownership because I've seen it in, in real time. And it's, it is so exciting. Oh, I, I believe that wholeheartedly. And then right now in this era, especially after the pandemic, there are so many people that want to start their own business. And to be part of a company and that encourage employee own, that is like, <laughs> you have a group of people that if you struggle, you struggle together. You grow, yes. you grow together. You're not alone, you know? Well, because that is one of the loneliest parts of being a business owner is that you feel like you're the only one bearing the burden. You feel like your shoulders are the only ones holding everything up. And when you do it together, you distribute that load across many shoulders and many hands. And I'll say this, the friendships that I've made along this journey, they, they go so deep. And I have this theory that it's like, when you are in an immersive situation, like you go to summer camp all summer, or you start college and you're living in a dorm for the first time, or I, I imagine that joining the military, you could have a similar kind of bond with the people that you go through this immersive experience with. The people that were in the early days of Namaste Solar, 15 years ago, I'm still very close friends with most of them because we went through this time together. So it's, it's personally rewarding as well as professionally rewarding because you have this, this incredible shared journey. But I also believe though, in your case with Namaste Solar is because the culture has been created to be that way. I don't know if, if we can say that every employee-owned company is going to be the same experience, right? So I think Blake and the other co-founders probably already bake in everything. They already have a vision and, and they really try very hard to build this type of culture that y- you become a family. Well, the brilliance of it really was that they invited everyone else mm. to co-create that culture. Yes. When people feel like they have an opportunity to create something together, that is when they feel the deepest sense of investment in it. So. When I left Namaste Solar, which was a very emotional and and difficult decision for me in so many ways because of the affection that I felt for the company and for the people there, they gave me a gift. And it was uh, one of the women who was a co-owner was also a potter. And she created a little clay pot. And they took it around to all the offices and invited everyone to impress their thumbprint on the pot. And then she fired it and hardened it. And they presented it to me to say, (laughs) it makes me emotional to make about it, to say, you put your thumbprint on this company. That is, that is so beautiful. And then, you know, Amanda, you are lucky because not everybody have that experience with the people that they work with. Very, very this lucky. This is true. I am very lucky and yes. I don't take that for granted. Very, very lucky. But I do, just to bring it back to, to what we, what, what anyone who's listening has the opportunity to create. Every company is going to be different. And it's going to be this unique alchemy of the people who, who join it. But that's the beauty is that everyone has the opportunity to press their thumbprint upon it and create it together and make it that unique combination of ideas and personalities and and quirks and eccentricities and and flavors that we are right because I just this whole idea that like business isn't personal has never made any sense to me it's where we spend so much of our time and energy trying to build something that will do good in the world or solve a problem in the world or serve people in the world yep I I agree it is personal Amanda, this has been amazing. You share a lot of great tips. You share, you know, your experience. I truly appreciate it. And if my audience wants to connect with you to learn more about you, where can they reach you? I am on LinkedIn. So we can put my LinkedIn contact in the show notes. Well, thank you so much, Christina. I think you're doing an incredible service to the world and helping bring people's stories to light and letting us share our journey, which It feels amazing. And I hope that 
it inspires somebody to take a closer look at employee ownership or cooperatives or, or what have you. And I'm, I'm always happy to be a resource, but thank you for doing what you're doing. Oh, I appreciate that. And then that's the whole goal. It's to encourage people to think outside the box because there is so many different strategy out there to make a better world. Thank you. And that's bring us to the end of another show. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Her CEO Journey, the business finance podcast for women entrepreneurs. If you want to create a proactive financial plan and process for your business, so you are ready to weather the financial storm over the next few months. Let's chat and see what's possible for you. Book in a time to speak with me at christinashahli.com forward slash let's chat.